Uh, like Andrew said, we're in uh, Romans, Romans chapter 8. If Chew your hand in there if you need a Bible. If you don't have one, you want to be able to follow along with us. So uh, get your hand in there. We'll get you a copy of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, keep it. It's yours. You can have it and uh, be able to get into God's Word. But uh, Romans chapter 8 is where we're at uh, today. And uh, as you're turning there, I just wanted to mention to you, uh, you know, so for me, I think I've shared with you guys before that... Uh, I think probably like for me, like a, a year of ministry is usually like an academic uh, year. I kind of follow that calendar. So for me, I'm like kind of getting to the close to the end of a year here. And uh, so August 7th and August 14th, Sundays, uh, I'm going to be out of town with my family, uh, not teaching, just letting the brain kind of reset a little bit. And um, I've asked Pastor Matt Kaler to do a two-week series for us. And I just kind of shared with him, I'm like, hey man, you know, just pray about it. I'd love for you to just kind of think about something that you really feel like for a couple of weeks would be great for our church to be able to receive and to hear, and uh, that you'd just kind of edify us and encourage us. And uh, the only kind of thing that I gave him is like a, like a suggestion. I was like, you can teach anything, you know, it's got to be in the Bible. That's my one requirement. But, you know, I was like a passage, a small book of the Bible, whatever. But I said, you know, we have been going through Romans and each week in Romans, you really got to think a lot as you're going through the book of Romans. It's all these building blocks and, and ideas that are all put together. I said, so, you know, there's a lot of stories in the Bible, it might be nice for us to have story time for a couple weeks because it's just easier to follow the narratives a lot of times for us. And so he prayed about it. He's going to do a two-week study uh, out of the book of Judges. And uh, so I'd encourage you to uh, be here for that. And uh, so that'll be August 7th and the 14th. So then uh, a little while ago, a month or so ago, I was at a conference and I met David Zamora. You saw him on the screen. And uh, ex-gangbanger, heroin addict, uh, had a radical kind of conversion, gave his life to Christ, and has become a man of God and an a excellent Bible teacher. And he was up there teaching at this conference, and as I was listening to him, I just kind of got the impression, like, I think he would be a really big blessing to us and to our church. To, if he would leave his fellowship for a week and come and speak to us, I think it would be really edifying and helpful for us as a church. So I kind of did this thing, speaking of judges, and uh, from the life of Gideon, there's this phrase Christians use sometimes about putting a fleece before the Lord. I put a little fleece before the Lord because I was like, Lord, I'll take, I I would like to not teach August 7th and the 14th, but also maybe three weeks in a row. One of my friends was like, you should not, you know, just be quiet for three weeks. Just let the Lord just kind of speak to you. So I sent, I said to David, I said, hey, could, could you come August 7th, 14th, or July 31st? And I just let him like decide, and he got back to me. He said, the only week I can make it is July 31st. So I was like, yeah, baby. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently the Lord just wants me to just kind of hear and listen. So I'll be here next week too, but um, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to share. So that's just, I just wanted you guys to know what's happening in the next few weeks uh, as a church. And then uh, we're concluding a really important section of Romans today in Romans chapter 8. And when I get back, we'll just pick it up in Romans chapter 9 and kind of do the second half of the book of Romans uh, in the fall as, uh, as a church, which is really important. Romans 9, 10, 11, what about the nation of Israel? We got this great gospel message, Romans 1 through 8, what about the nation of Israel? And then Romans 12 to 16, how do we then respond 
and practically live out the Christian life. Uh, because you probably noticed in Romans 1 through 8, there's not a whole lot in there about what we're supposed to do. It's about what Christ did and what we've received by faith and a few exhortations. Uh, but when we get to Romans chapter 12, it's imperative after imperative, exhortation after exhortation, command after command. So we're going to learn about how we live now the Christian life built on the foundation of um, Romans 1 uh, through uh, 8 and 1 through uh, 11. Okay? All right, that's my preamble. Let's pray and uh, get into uh, to Romans 8, 31. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and uh, your grace, your mercy, Lord. And um, we just come to you, Lord, this morning. We've got these Bibles in our hands. We're looking at these words, Lord, that you have preserved for a couple thousand years now. And we believe, Lord, that there was a moment where you infused this man, Paul, with such dynamic power from your Holy Spirit that it was you breathing out your word, using his personality and his mind and his language, but very much you breathing out and speaking through him as these things were written down and now preserved, Lord, for us. We consider it a treasure. And so, Father, today, as we have these books in our hands, we pray, Lord, and ask that these very words that came from the throne room of God and were spoken, breathed out to us, for us, uh, Lord, we ask and pray that you would use them, Lord, in our lives. Help us by your spirit to see them clearly and help me, Lord, by your spirit to communicate them and to teach them clearly. So we pray for that, Father. We ask, Lord, that you do it. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. So if you were to ask Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the authors of the four gospel accounts that are in the New Testament, if you were to ask Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified, uh, they would run... Through for you all of the external details of what Christ uh, did and accomplished. You know, the night before he went to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and there uh, he was betrayed by Judas. And they came and arrested him, took him, and in the middle of the night, put him through three illegal Jewish trials. And then at, nine, at six o'clock in the morning, he was brought to the Gentiles, and Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again, put him through three Gentile trials. He was then scourged, whipped, the lashes coming down upon his back, his flesh. A crown of thorns was placed upon him. The soldiers put a purple cloak or garment upon him and beat him. It was a mockery that was coming from them, from them as they called him the king of the Jews. And then eventually they gave him his cross beam and told him to carry his own cross to Mount Calvary where he would be crucified. And so he went there. He didn't have the physical strength any longer to carry his crossbeam, so they compelled a man named Simon to carry the crossbeam for him. And when they got there, they pierced his hands, they pierced his feet, and they mounted him up in between two robbers, criminals, who were also being crucified by the Roman government that day. And there, from 9 o'clock till 12 o'clock in the morning, uh, Jesus... Uh, endured the mockery of people passing by 
and the uh, spitting and the insults and the challenges. If you're really who you say you are, why don't you come down and save yourself? And Jesus would speak. He spoke to the man, uh, the robber. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said a few things there in those first three hours. And then at noon, the gospel writers tell us, darkness came over the face of the land for three hours. No words were spoken, no words recorded, just darkness. Jesus was paying for the sin of the world, but there during that darkness at the end of it, at at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, shouted, it is finished, said that he was thirsty, and they brought him a little bit of sour wine to drink, and after drinking it, he breathed out his last and said, Father, into your hands I commit uh, my spirit. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Joseph, who was a secret disciple, a Pharisee, along with Nicodemus, another secret disciple, took the body of Jesus with some of Jesus' female disciples, and they hastily prepared the body of Jesus for burial and put it into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The religious leaders then went to Pilate and said, this deceiver, when he was alive, said that he would come again. And so would you put a guard outside of and a seal upon the tomb so that they can't come and steal the body and claim that he has risen from the grave? That's the account. Uh, If you were to say to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what happened? Those were the things that they recorded. But if you were to say to Paul the Apostle, what happened on the day that Jesus died? He would write Romans 1, for eight, 1 through 8 for you. He would tell you, this is what Jesus did for you. This is what he was accomplishing there upon the cross. And I know it's not the end of the book. I realize that we have eight more chapters to go and uh, that it's taken us a little while to get to this point. But it feels like the end of the book, in a sense, because the next sections that come are just kind of connected to and different from this main teaching that Paul has given here in Romans 1 through 8. He began this section by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he began it that way, and then he began to pour out the gospel message. And it began with the bad news of the wrath of God. The wrath of God has appeared or is revealed Uh, against, from heaven, against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. So we're not born with the love of God. We're born underneath, it says, the wrath of God. That's the disposition of God because we're unholy. He's holy. It's the only way that it can be. But his love necessitated and propelled the gospel message and Jesus died for the sin of the world and that when we believe in him we get all these incredible blessings from Romans 1 through 8. So here what we have in this section Romans 8 1 31 to 39 is just simply Paul at the end of that section we got all this stuff that Jesus did for us it took us like five chapters just to find a word that tells us what to do. It wasn't until chapter 5 where we were even told to do anything. It's just, he did this. I mean, like, we were in the first five chapters. It was like all our sin. 
Like that, that was what we did in, the, in the, this first section. But then our belief came in, our trust came in, and we we're given all this incredible stuff uh, from the Lord. And so how do we respond to this amazing, overwhelming, incredible grace? Well, Paul, that's what Paul's going to say in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What do we say to all this? And Paul is going to say, I'm just going to compact it into three things that Paul said. Three things that Paul said. And he's going to do it in the form of questions. And it, to me, it's like a big song that he's singing. And my thing is, if you and me, if we can sing this song, well, I mean, first, first of all, the only way you're going to sing this song is by knowing the truth in Romans 1 through 8. But if you know the truth of Romans 1 through 8 and you sing this song, I think you're going to have a really healthy, powerful, dynamic, incredible life. I just think that's what's going to come. Because the first big question that Paul's going to ask is, uh, who can be against us? If God's on my team and I'm on his team, who can be against us? And if you can get that inside your head, uh, powerful things happen. And then the second thing he's going to ask is he's going to say, uh, who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? And we're walking around perplexed, paralyzed, half of what we could be, because we're listening to voices we shouldn't listen to. And so if you can get the who shall condemn us part of this song, it's going to set you free. And then a third thing is, he's going to say, and who can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. So being confident of God's love, I think that if, if you have a confidence of God's love, God's righteousness towards you, and uh, that God is for you as a believer, uh, then I think it sets us free uh, in a lot of ways. So let's just look at this song together and see what Paul actually says. He says in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If, you, if you're a believer here and you've been transferred from Adam into Christ, this is part of the song that you're able to sing. God is for us. And if God is for us, who? Who in the world can be against us if God is for us. Now, when Paul says that, he's not speaking. You might have read that and thought, that's pretty naive. And this guy is acting like there's not an enemy out there. There's no hardship out there. There's no difficulty out there. But Paul was operating and living very much in the very real world. He wasn't rocking around with his head in the clouds, you know, of so much uh, heavenly, uh, so heavenly minded that he was of no earthly good or anything like that. Paul, man, he understood what it was like to have enemies. I mean, he would go to a town, he preached the gospel, people would get saved. He'd have a really cool response. And then all these people would come in right behind him and try to disrupt, break down, and destroy everything that he'd just done. And try to say what Paul has just told you is untrue. They tried to corrupt the message of the gospel. Paul had experienced being beaten uh, for his faith, uh, being imprisoned uh, for his faith. And so Paul understood what it was like to have an actual external enemy coming after him. But Paul understood and realized that those enemies, the ones locking him up and beating him and trying to disrupt his message, all that kind of stuff, he understood that those enemies were actually only the external of what was happening in the spiritual realm. That's why he would say, like in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He saw these Judaizers coming in trying to break apart the message that he preached, and he said, it's actually not against them that I'm wrestling. 
says, I'm not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. There's like this demonic, spiritual, dark realm that is against me as one of God's children. So Paul understood that. So it's not that he's saying, hey, God's for us, so there are no enemies. What he's saying, though, is that those enemies exist, but since God is for us, it's like those enemies, what are they in comparison to the God who who exists and is for us as his people? And, and, And I think that if we could get that inside of our minds, if that could wash over our minds, the Bible talks about and uses a word called renewed for what our minds need. Our minds must be renewed. If our minds could be renewed to understand how much God is for us, I think we would behave altogether differently than we so often behave uh, kind of on our da- in our daily kind of lives. I'll give you an example of this from the Old Testament. Andrew was talking about David and Goliath. Well, before David and Goliath, uh, not David, but Jonathan, who was a good friend of David eventually. He was at uh, the son of Saul, the king. And there's a moment in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where he, with his armor bearer, is looking up at a Philistine fortress. And he just says to his armor bearer, he says, look, what is holding back God from delivering us, the people of Israel, we're his covenant people. So that means God is for us. So he's saying, if God is for us, then he said to his armor bearer, then the two of us, we could go and we could battle against this fortress. God could do it with a lot of us or God could do it with a few of us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And his armor bearer, you know, he was like, yeah, that sounds, that's really good in theory. No, the armor bearer said, no, go for it. I'm with you. I'm together with you. And the two of these guys, they run up the hill and they go against this Philistine fortress and the two of them are given this great victory. Where did that kind of courage come from? I think a lot of times we think of faith as this like unthinking, uh, just like, well, they're just kind of like, Jonathan was just kind of crazy. But that's not it at all. He had a very clear concept of God, that God was for him, that God was on his side. And with God for him, his question in his mind was, who in the world can be against me if God is for me? And so that's how Paul begins this song. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now the question that we might ask as a follow-up to that is, then how do I know that God is for me? Well, notice what Paul continued to sing in verse 32. He said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. The way that you know that God is for you and not against you, if you're a believer today, the way that you understand this and know this, is that God the Father did not withhold from you his own son. Have you ever stopped to just consider that God... He's more devoted to you than you will ever be to him. We talk about, some people call their quiet time, daily devotions. You know, like, I mean, if you're like new to the church, new to the body of Christ, and someone's like, I'm doing my devotions, you're like, what is that? What are you talking about? That's weird. And you maybe search for it in the Bible, and you're like, it's not in there. What is that? 
What is it? So it's just, a, or if they shorten it up, I'm doing my devos, you know? Like, well, that's even weirder. What is that? Is that like an exercise you do, you know? And, and what we're meaning is, I want to be devoted to God. I'm, I'm devoted to God. I'm, I'm going to show God my devotion. Have you ever stopped to consider, though, you're never going to be even close to as devoted to God as he is to you. He gave you his, his only begotten son. He did not withhold his son for you and for me. Abraham in Genesis 22 was told, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Of course, God then intervened and said, no, I don't, I don't want your son. But it was a way for us to say, and we don't have to do that, but God does that. The father gives his son, and the son, of course, willingly is the second person of the Trinity. He gives himself for you and for me. And so Paul is saying, how do I know that God is for me? I look at the cross. I don't look at my circumstances. I look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if God gave us the greater, then he will give us the lesser. If God gave us his son, Paul says, verse 32, he will also, with his son, graciously give us all things. So you just think about your life, and you just have to understand God is with you. God is for you. He gave you a son. He's going to graciously give you all things that he wants to give you, that he wants to put in your life. He's going to do that in your life because he is absolutely for you. I remember when Christina and I got engaged, you know, years ago, and, uh, you know, I, I was broke, you know. I had nothing. And so to, like, scrap together enough cash to get a diamond ring, you know, it was like it was it was tough to do you know and it was like well why don't you just put it on the credit card well i didn't know pastor andrew then so you know he would have said no to that anyways but like i couldn't even get a credit card i was like that broke you know so it was like how how is this gonna happen you know and i had to scrape together everything i had you know i got her this little diamond ring yeah i know you know we went to a beach in carmel and you know, I got on my knee and did the whole thing, you know, and she said yes, and we were so excited. And this was like, we didn't have cell phones yet, you know, at that point, the two of us, so we wanted to like call people and tell people and stuff, so we had to like find a payphone, you know, so some of you don't know what a payphone is, it's this phone, you put money into it, it's public, and you kind of like wipe it down, <laughs> disinfect it, you know, um, and so what we did is we went, it was like at nighttime and everything, so we went to, we went to Denny's. <laughs> That's where we went for our engagement celebration dinner. And uh, so we're there, and we're like calling people, we're getting food, you know, we're hanging out. Of course, you know, it's like, if I, there was no hesitation in my heart. It wasn't like, I don't, I'm not going to buy you, I'm not going to buy you Denny's. No, it was like I just bought, I just sprung for a diamond ring. Of course, you're my future bride. If I'll give you that whatever, I'll buy you some pancakes, you know? <laughs> That's kind of the argument that Paul is using. He's using an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God would give his son, how will he not freely, graciously give us all things? So Peter said it this way in First Peter. He said, God has given us everything that is needed for life and for godliness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So Paul is just set free because he understands that he, the, the position he ha now has in Christ Jesus sets him in a place where God is absolutely for him. And I know a lot of people just want to believe that they automatically have God 
being for them. But this is only one for you by Jesus. You don't win it by birth. You win it by Jesus Christ and believing and trusting in him. So, number one, you know, in this song we have God's favor. Now, secondly, he then says this in verse 33. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so the first question was kind of like this this thing of, you know, who can be against us? Here the question is, who can bring a charge against us or who can condemn us? Those are the two words Paul uses, charge and condemn. Who can do that? Who can do that? Now again, it's not like Paul is saying, there's no such thing as an accuser. There's no such thing as a condemning thought uh, uh, out there. No, he's very conscious of the reality that there, is, there are accusations, there are accusers. And, and the Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 10, that Satan himself is the accuser of the brothers. And so his whole thing is to just cruise around and accuse and say, you know, you're not this, and you're not that, and you're not worth it, and you're not loved by God, and you're not forgiven, and look at all the stuff you've done, and you'll never amount to it. You know, that's Satan's kind of thing. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we will believe those thoughts, thinking that there are thoughts even, and sometimes they even do originate from the broken part of us, uh, and then we'll kind of own them and say, well, I thought them, and I think so often we value our own thoughts way too highly. And so we'll say, I thought this, I think this, and this must be true. And then sometimes we'll even go a step beyond that horribly, and we will not only think these accusing thoughts for ourselves, but we'll actually then be the instrument of accusation, condemnation, charging against God's children, against others. So it's it's a horrible thing. So it's not like Paul is saying, there's no accuser out there. But he's just saying, This is what happens. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? He says, it's God who justifies. And it's Jesus who died for us, was buried for us and raised for us, and is right now seated at the right hand of the Father who is right now interceding for us. So I want you to see is that all of this is in the present tense. And and, and why that's important is because last week we saw Paul say, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he is right now groaning inside of you to the first person of the Trinity, the Father, about you. He's interceding to the Father for you. They're conversing about you for your good to use all things together for good for his children. And then here we have that the Father, what is he doing? The Father, he says, justifies. It's also in the present tense. Because we think of justification in the past tense, right? I became a believer. I raised my hand. I prayed the prayer. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer now. And at that point, God justified me. I was guilty, but now I'm justified. I was in sin, but now I've been justified. It's kind of the idea of being remade or built up. But what he's saying here is God Currently justifies. 
So if you've been justified, he is still in the process of building you up. He's still justifying and restoring you. Like maybe a good picture of this would be the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah rolled back into Jerusalem and he was uh, busy rebuilding the broken walls and the burnt gates there in Jerusalem. He's rebuilding that city pretty quickly, but he's going through that rebuilding process. That's what God is doing to you right now. He's justifying you. So the Father is rebuilding you. And the Son, Paul says in this verse, the second person of the Trinity, he is right now at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for you. He's there before the Father just like, now, Father, this guy, Nate Holdridge, he's clean, he's forgiven, he's redeemed, he's mine, he belongs to me. Let's do stuff in his life, let's work, let's speak, let's move, let's chasten, let's sanctify, let's develop, let's grow. And that is the triune Godhead's activity towards us, at least in part. So here's what Paul's thing, thing is. He's like, so, when a, con, when a charge comes against you, condemnation comes against you, and it's like going through the various courts in the land, and it goes all the way up, 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 up to the Supreme Court, the only court that really matters. Not the Supreme Court of your mind, because that's not the ultimate court, but God himself. And the charge or the accusation is brought about so-and-so, a believer. And it's brought to the Almighty Judge. What is that judge doing? That judge is working so hard for the very person that's being accused. And if you're the accuser showing up that day, you're like, hey, I got something to say about. And you see that the judge is just like, I love this guy. I'm working on this guy's behalf. I'm doing everything I can for him. It just kind of, it's like, okay, that accusation is falling. Paul's point is the accusation is falling on deaf ears. Because the father, because of the gospel, he has now said, these are my people. And I am interceding for them with every part of me for their success and for their growth and for their transformation. But so often, we don't sing this song. So often, we live under a a charge of guilt and condemnation. We walk around with that kind of feeling about us. I can't measure up. I I can't be. I can't do. But to understand who you are in Christ, man, it can set you free. In the Old Testament, there's a story of the people of Israel, they'd been gone in captivity for a long time. So the temple had been destroyed and was totally decayed. And a foreign king named Cyrus sent 50,000 people of Israel back into Jerusalem in specifically to rebuild the temple. And two guys were really in charge, Zerubbabel as the political governor and Joshua, the spiritual leader, the high priest. And they were trying, but they stalled. Years went by. Nothing's happening. Nothing, 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 nothing's happening. The temple's just sitting there. Nobody's rebuilding. 14 years, 15 years, 16 years go by. Nothing's happening. And Joshua, the high priest, 
I know that there was discouragement in his heart because of that lack of progress. And the reason I know that is because it says in Zechariah, Zechariah, a prophet, rolled in to talk to Joshua. And he said, here's a vision I've had. And it's of the throne room of God. And at the right hand of God stands Satan accusing you before God. Now, I don't know what that looked like for Joshua. It might have just been that he woke up one morning and he's like, why is this taking so long? You ever felt that way about your sanctification and growth? Why is this taking so long? I got this issue in my life. I've confessed it. You know, I'm trying to deal with it. But why is it taking so long? And that kind of charge or condemnation begins to creep in to your heart. And as Joshua was there being accused, the Lord said, he's not who you say he is. This is a brand plucked from the fire. He belongs to me. Clothe him, take off his filthy garments, clothe him in white, put a white turban upon his head. And what that meant was, Joshua, you are good to go to serve me. You got the priestly garments on, you are good to go. You're not feeling like you're qualified, but you are because I've made you so. And I think that if we could get this second part of the song into our heads a little bit more, I think there's a lot of stuff that we just don't do, that we stand away from, that we just, I think a lot of trouble we get ourselves into by believing, listening to some of the condemning thoughts that can come in to our minds and come, come into our uh, hearts. So that's the second part of the song there in Romans uh, chapter 8. All right, let's look at the final verse of the song. It's about the love of God. So the third question is, uh, who can separate us uh, from God's love? So uh, we've asked the question, you know, who can be against us and, and who can condemn us? And here Paul says, who, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he's going to end this little part of the song by saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's thinking about God's love. Who can separate us from God's love? Now, just that Paul is even talking like this tells you that his heart has been electrified by the gospel message. Because when he was cruising around as a Pharisee in self-righteousness, the love of God was not a thing he was thinking about very much. He was thinking about God and his righteous requirement and his wrath and all that kind of stuff. And he's just kind of underneath all of that. But he's not thinking of the love of God. But here, he's come to a place where he realizes that God's love is very real. Who, he says, can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks a very important question. Notice verse 35. He goes on and says, Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now, if you or I were to ask a lot of those questions... A lot of those questions would be really theoretical. You know, could a sword, theoretically, if I'm about to die for my faith, could that separate me from the love of God? But for Paul, these weren't theories. These were realities. He had walked through all this stuff. And you got to believe that, that that's sometimes a difficult question. When you're serving Jesus, with your, you're serving your guts out for Jesus, and you're out there you know, suffering, being arrested, thrown in prison. It's kind of a question of like, God, do you love me? 
Do you love me? Can I be separated from your love? Is that possible? I'm living this life for you. Is it possible for me to be separated from your love? And so Paul does a really interesting thing in verse 36. He goes to the Old Testament and quotes an Old Testament verse that to him helps him and now us understand the love of God. Now just like if we didn't read the next verse, verse 36, and we just closed our eyes and we're like, I wonder what verse he quoted to help him be comforted that like God loves him and is for him and he cannot be separated from the love of God. There's like a lot of cool verses that we might think about, right? I mean, there's a lot of beautiful psalms that we might think about, something really devotional that we might think about. Maybe one, like here's a big one. I'm sure there's a few of you, like you'd say like, that's my life verse. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And it's like maybe Paul's gonna bust out a verse like that right now. You know, like, like, I don't know, like, can anything separate me from God's love? In all this chaos in life, can anything separate me? No, you know, I've just been thinking about Jeremiah 29, 11, or, you know, or like maybe Lamentations, you know, going in there like the, the mercies and, uh, of God are new every morning, or just something beautiful like that. But here's what Paul does. He goes to Psalm 44, verse 22. Let's read the quotation. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The end. <laughs> That's like his big encouraging verse, you know? Like, you, would you ever do that to one of your friends? Like, I'm just really struggling. You're like, does God love me? And, you know, and then you're like, oh, I got a verse for you. Psalm 44, verse 22. It like, talks about just like just dying all day, you know? Like, but that, that was something for Paul. And, you know, maybe you're like, well, I bet, like, if you read the whole psalm, you know, it probably gets better. And there are some psalms that are like that. A lot of psalms are like that. They're like an American sitcom, you know, where it's like there's conflict at the beginning, and then they work through the conflict, and at the end, everybody's having dinner together, and it's nice and happy. There's a lot of psalms that are like that, where the, the psalmist is struggling, kind of goes down into the depths, and then battles through it in prayer, and then comes out just like praising God, and everything's good, and rejoicing, and all that, but not Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is one of those psalms where it just ends still in this like, hey, we heard about your steadfast love. Are you ever going to show it? It's just this really honest kind of thing before God. We're walking with you. We're trying to serve you. We're loving you. But all day long, we are being killed like sheep to be slaughtered. Paul had come to such a place and such a depth in his Christian life as he went from town to town preaching the gospel message, as he experienced persecutors, trials, difficulties. He has this beautiful little line that he says to the Corinthian church where he's recounting his difficulties. He says, and I fought with the beasts at Ephesus. He's like, man, when I went to Ephesus and did gospel work there, it was exceptionally hard. I fought with the beasts at Ephesus. This is what it felt like. It felt like I was thrown into the Colosseum, fighting against wild animals. It was hard. And something happened to Paul where as he went through all that, he just experienced I'm loved by God in the middle of all this. 
I'm loved by God in the middle of all this. That's why Paul was able to say in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's not saying from all these things. Had he said from all these things, then he'd say, yeah, I'm a conqueror, like I'm an overcomer, like from all these things. You know? and, and, and we know that's not the way that it works for us. You know, It's not like, a, and I received Jesus, and, and then boom, I was born again. And then he just said, and now I take you home. You're out of here from all these things. Paul said, no, it kind of got worse. But in all these things, in all these things, he says, I'm not a conqueror, but I'm more than a conqueror. In Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I think more than a conqueror means it's one thing to overcome death. It's another thing to die and be resurrected. And that's what Christ is giving to you and to me. It's a more than conquering kind of love that he takes us through. And Paul, as he got a hold of that and realized that Jesus was the main sheep who was slaughtered and that he was following in the footsteps of Christ, it set his soul free and it helped him understand, in the middle of all this, God loves me. If I'm kicking it in a Philippian jail cell like he did in Acts 16, I can sing to God in the middle of the night because I know this chain, this dungeon does not separate me from God's love. And so he rejoiced and said this in verse 38, for I am sure, I am sure, he says, I am sure, I'm confident of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I looked at everything in all of God's created order and I discovered that none of that could separate me from the love of God. And what Paul is, is, is saying, he's not saying, I will never let go of God's love. He's not saying that. He's saying, God's love will never let go of me. This is such extreme confidence. And um, I think really simply, because we're just kind of coming to the close of a really big section here in God's Word, Romans 1 through 8. And I think really simply, uh, I, I would like to say my heart for you, but it, to, to me it's just an extension of what I think God's heart for us is. Is that all the truth of Romans 1 to 8 and I apologize if you're here for the first time this week, you know, and you're like, I haven't been here for all of Romans 1 through 8. I'm just kind of dropping into all this. There's a reason we record all these teachings. You can go back and listen to them. But as we listen to other teachers who, you know, exposit and teach and show us the truth of Romans 1 through 8, my heart, and I think God's heart for us is that as we know them, that we be set free from the feeling that God is not for us, that we be set free from the voices that try to rip down rather than show us who we are in Christ, try to give us an identity that is not accurate rather than the identity God gives us. Because when we hear God's identity, we rise up to a different standard of life. And the voices that would say, God doesn't love you. 
the Romans 1 through 8 is designed to help you come to a place where you can sing this song. And when you can sing this, when you and I can sing this louder and louder and louder and clearer and clearer and clearer, the things just get decluttered and our, our lives become less messy and we just have a confidence in God that is so strong and beautiful. And I think we do things that we've been remade to do. And we live a life that we've been remade to live. None of us are fully walking in it yet. So we, we still just want to get this so that we can live that on this side of eternity. Amen?